special road trip version of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And together, we are pretending that we are comedians in cars talking cults. (laughs) Charles, I've been wanting to do this for a while, just get together and, I don't know, talk about the experiences that we had during all of this research. I'll be honest, whenever I first began thinking through the ideas of where we could go with this, I really didn't know where it would take us because I had some research but I didn't have all the puzzle pieces and you had some research and you know when we put them together I wasn't sure where we would end up but I think honestly after what is it now we're up to 100 and what is it 160 episodes (laughs) it's a lot of episodes we are um, you know we've fully and completely gone through the life and history of William Branham and the latter rain healing revivals and I feel like it's. I, th- I feel like we've done justice to the research. Yeah, John, I I have been excited uh, to do this too. So this is kind of our uh, finale on uh, getting everything wrapped up in our in our main series, looking at William Branham. I know you had uh, uh, been uh, interested in doing a series like this uh, not long after we first met each other course I was kind of uh, uh, more hesitant but you know it it has been good it has worked out really well um, I, there I believe we have put together what is probably the most comprehensive analysis of the life and ministry of William Branham that exists and we've we've for the most part been able to put in documentation pictures everything through all of it with the newspaper articles and all the other evidences that I think will really help anybody that wants to examine it Um, and it's all in a very easy to uh, access format for people who don't like doing their own research (laughs) the pictures come to them on the screen so that that's pretty nice Uh, so yeah I mean I've I've been really pleased with how it's all came out Um, we started I think we started what in uh, well I know we started recording in July of 2022 and now what it is it it is August of 2023 so just over a year um, it'll probably still be at least another month away before this episode comes out. So uh, it's kind of nice just to be able to drive around here of the sites of Jeffersonville, have a chat, and kind of recap everything. Yeah, it is nice. I, um, you know, for the listeners who are on the audio-only feeds, you'll probably want to go to the YouTube version of this because we are literally. I, <laughs> I joked, comedians in cars talking cults, which. I don't know if you've seen the show with Jerry Seinfeld, Comedians in Cars, uh, Getting Coffee, I think it's called, but we're literally driving around Jeffersonville. Um, Charles and I, believe it or not, we don't really get together that much. We meet every few weeks, you know, for lunch and talk about the episodes and where we're headed, but we haven't really had a chance to get together, so this gives us a good chance to just drive around and Charles, I'm curious, whenever <laughs> whenever we first began this journey, I remember that you um, you were hesitant, very hesitant, and you had just freshly escaped the cult, and 
I remember that feeling. I remember how hard it was after you first leave, what it's like. And um, I'm curious for you now that you've been out for, what is it now, one, two years now. And after processing this research, I'm curious your thoughts on just processing the research itself. Do you feel like that has helped you in, in your journey and your escape? Yeah, it has been... Let me think. You know, it's it's hard to set an exact date. Um, I think the last time I, uh, you know, was in the church that I left would have been January of mm, 2000 and, uh, 2021, I believe. So I would be a, a little over two years out now, what, two and a half years out roughly. Um, the last time I was in there, I actually went to a funeral, and my, my sect of the message is very infamous for using funerals as vehicles to attack people that are stuck in the seats out of there. <laughs> exactly. I did that to Billy Paul last time he came to one of our funerals. <laughs> well, anyway, I was, uh, I, of course, I was, I was attacked, you know, uh, for showing up to the funeral, and so that, that was the last time I was there. Um, you know, they're just going to be so very rude, honestly. Um... But yeah, I, the first year out, John, I just, uh, I really didn't do too much of anything as far as uh, saying anything publicly. I, I left, and most everyone who asked me when I left um, asked me what I was doing. I told them, well, I'm just going to disappear. That was really all I had in mind was just to go away. I, at that point, I had already digested a large part of the research, um, which is kind of what had led me to the conclusion that I was going to leave to begin with. Um, but I, I was still not actually of the mind that it was a cult and that William Branham was totally a false prophet there right at the first when I left. It took me about, I was probably three or four months after I was out that I finally came to that conclusion. The last straw for me uh, was when I really discovered the depth to which William Branham had copied the seven seals. Like When I left, I already knew he had copied, I found, I believe, three of them, um, but I hadn't found the rest. And then after, after I left... I started digging in, and then I soon discovered where he had copied the rest of the seals from. And then from there, the way the way our part of the message is structured is just everything just collapses at that point. I mean, if William Branham didn't get the seals from angels, the mess thing there is no message. I mean, so it just all fell apart. But I think the um, going through these episodes, John, yeah, I mean, it has been very nice to just methodically go through each aspect of all of the uh, documentation. I know every episode, like, uh, we haven't just sat down and chatted it out. We, uh, I have, you know, spend a, a good 10, 12, 20 hours every week um, prepping for uh, the episodes. So I would uh, review all the research again, double check all the findings, um, try to pull everything together and just basically research it all over again right before every episode to make sure, um, you know, everything I'm saying is, is, is accurate and spot on. So uh, it has been very nice to um, to uh, be able to just process through all that again. And for me personally, um, I'm, I'm sure that people see a difference in my demeanor from the first episode to now. I, I've slowly recovered from all of the it is very painful to leave the message on. Oh my goodness, it is so, so sad. It is absolutely devastating to discover that your entire belief system is a hoax um, and you've been deceived your entire life. That is so painful. And, 
you know, I'm still not overall that hurt. I mean, that just hurts so bad, but I'm, I'm certainly in a better place having processed a lot of it uh, through this series. It is a difficult journey, and um, it's funny because when we first met, <laughs> you were a little bit hesitant to do the podcast. I was also, people don't know this, I was also a little bit hesitant because we had gone through some severely traumatic family health issues and um, we were just you know we were right in the middle of the worst of it when we first met and even when we first began the podcast we were I had um, a lot of people don't know this I had struggled with diabetes up to that point and I had almost reversed it in fact I thought I had reversed it until the family health issues hit and I um, you know with all the trauma that hit me, <laughs> I fell off the wagon, I guess you would say, and it it didn't end well, but during the course of this, I too have healed quite a bit. Just being able to process it. Uh, you know, when you go to a therapist, they'll often tell you to write a book because it tell it helps you to process what happened to you. And I feel like you and I have, <laughs> we've, we've kind of processed what happened to us. and. I have um, been on a very, very rigid diet. I've been on a um, very rigid exercise program every day. And about three, four weeks ago, I maybe a little bit longer than that, I've actually reversed diabetes fully. I can eat whatever I want now. And so from a personal standpoint, I'm doing quite a bit better. From a mental standpoint, doing extremely better. It is though, like you said, really hard. I remember the trips, and we're, um, I'll try to show some video footage, but we're driving into Jeffersonville now. I still remember those trips as a kid because there was just something special about coming here, I thought, because that's the way it was presented to us. And um, Charles, I recently gave a friend of mine from out west a tour of the sites in Jeffersonville. We, can't, we made the same exact journey that I'm making now with you. And I was telling him that one of the funny things about this is it used to be whenever you came into Jeffersonville and you took this little curve here for 10th Street, there was, used to be a sewer right here. So the very first thing that you smelled when you came into Jeffersonville was poop. And um, I was telling, you know, I was joking with him because now that I know so much of it was just so wrong, the smell actually matched <laughs> matched the theology to a, a large extent in my opinion <clears throat> but um you'd make this journey into Jeffersonville and it was like this holy trip into this Mecca and um, I, I never will forget we would come down this pathway down 10th Street and seeing you know voice of God recording spoken word the tabernacle Spring Street some of these places which we're driving through right now it just it felt holy but then after you escape and after you get out of that mental hold that they have over you I'll say it in the words of my friend who I gave the tour recently he says what is this place this is so underwhelming he's from uh, he was actually from Africa and he said in Africa man they tell you that this is the most holy place and it's wonderful and it, <laughs> it looks like I think he used the word dumpster fire it, it looked you know, it looks not like nothing, and that's all the way it has always been. I remember 
you know what I see now it is the town is quite a bit run down from what it used to be but even back then it wasn't much to speak about yeah Jeffersonville's not uh, an amazing place uh, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination it is kind of a run-down town and it's been that way a long time here we're turning in where uh, a spoken word used to be located at um, the old quadrangle uh, yeah, Jeffersonville is just not much of a place. But yeah, people come from all over the world uh, to be here, John. Same as art, whether it's conventions in our sect, whether it's the main sect, whether it's just to, to visit the sites here. People come from from everywhere. So this here was the uh, quartermaster's depot during the American Civil War uh, for the Army of the West. Um, so this is where they marshaled all of the supplies. They built this for the Civil War um, to supply the Western Ar Western Union armies during the war. There's lots of history here. Um, and there was a bridge across the river here, which was really the only bridge back in those days, which is why they built it here. And uh, they would they would uh, use this as the depot. And of course, after the war's over, it all ends up eventually being turned into uh, space that could be leased. And so spoken word, uh, leased space here, which is where they printed the original uh, and did the original translation services on all of William Branham's sermons. So, this is where the original transcripts of William Branham's sermons were created. Yeah, I remember walking into this building as a kid, and you know, it's it's just so. Especially after we saw the research from Gerald Walker in the Sarah Branham investigation, and <laughs> just seeing the way in which it appears according to what Walker said and I'm no expert but it appears that there were some tax evasion strategies going on and you know comparing what we know now to what I thought as a child is just so vastly different because I saw all of these men as holy and I saw all of them as being you know models for me to model my life after and I'll be honest, I really don't want to model my life after any of them now that I know what's behind this and knowing what they know. We would take the tour through that quartermaster's depot, um, spoken word it used to be, and then we would come over to my grandfather's church here on 10th Street, and uh, or Penn Street, and um, you know, it just, we were told angels lined the walls of this building. And, you know, that the prophecies were under the building and learning the layout of the land during the time in which this church started and finding that this building wasn't even here and they were, <laughs> they were preaching down the street a bit. I just, it was just really shocking. I knew some of that, but I didn't have the timeline pieced together until you and I put our research together and honestly just learning about your research into Milltown and then my research combined with the uh, couple that was doing the research into the um, bridges, the searching for vindication. Once we pieced all of that together into an accurate timeline, there's just no way that this church is what it says that it is. So if they are angels, I question from what deity those angels are coming from. John, would you believe I have never stepped foot inside the Branham Tabernacle? <laughs> really? I have never stepped foot in that building. 
Um, now, of course, I have been around this many, many times. I've seen inside. You know, we've had picture tours. But me, most people in our church have never stepped inside the Branham Tabernacle. We, uh, as far as the, you know, other than the elder generation, we basically believe that that place got turned into a spook house um, after <laughs> after your grandfather took over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were we were mostly terrified. I'm somewhat terrified to go in there like a spirit might get you or something and make you worship William Branham. So, yeah, we generally did not go in there. Um, but, yeah, but you have this... The way they would describe the things that went on there in days gone by, I mean, it just... Um, you just imagine this holy thing, this amazing thing. I remember, you know, they would talk about how they were just on the edges of their seats when he would preach the seals and they thought by the time he got to the end of the week the rapture might happen you know what happens when he gets to the seventh seal like and all of these sort of things like they were just mesmerized amazing stories that that these people would tell and so you the, it's really this strong build-up but then you know it's like you mentioned you we find out wait a minute this congregation was recruited by Roy Davis, the second in command of the Ku Klux Klan, is part of a denomination started by him and Caleb Ridley, the national chaplain of the Klan. And then uh, William Branham was his assistant pastor. And then he gets in trouble for kidnapping an underage girl for sex, and he gets arrested off the platform, and then his church burns down, and then William Branham moves the congregation up the street and starts the Branham Tabernacle. Like, how did they fail to tell us those details? <laughs> you know, how can they leave that out? And it sure paints a whole different um, background picture of what actually happened to how this, how this movement, how at least the Branham Tabernacle uh, began, and where the original congregation of the church came from. Yeah, I, you know, I'm driving past the library right now. I spent so many weeks i mean i know <laughs> the people in the indiana room i know them personally they're actually friends that we chat from time to time on facebook with because <clears throat> they've helped me find so much of the the research that went into this but learning that absolutely nothing that they told you was true it was a little bit mind-boggling and more to the point, learning that, I mean, these are, these are public facilities. I'm going into the library, I'm going into the courthouse. Anybody who lived here could have done the same thing that I did. And anybody who values the religion that they're in should take a journey for truth to see what is it they're in. Is it true? We're driving right now down where all the casinos used to be and if you drive down Jeffersonville, you can see these photographs on the sides of the building of how it used to look, how the casinos used to be. Well, that doesn't match whenever he said that he lived here and there was this little old general store and <laughs> it was a one-horse town the way he described it, right? Well, to learn that this was a massive casino town and even worse than that, it was the gambling fun town for the people across the river to come over here and party that's really what it was and they had all of these quick marriage places you know the ministers over here were not reputable by no means so much so that it made indiana state news how bad this was ministers were literally letting people come over get married 
so that they could satisfy their minds while they had a weekend of sex and then get divorced and they're called quick marriages and you know all this is going on in the casino town that's not what we were told man that's not the holy jeffersonville that we were told but more to the point i cried during those life stories charles i learning that this boy was visited by angels and god came down into this little log cabin that he grew up in and finding all of this i mean what we're going to pass here in a minute we'll go past all the train tracks but for me just learning that they had a trolley <laughs> that took you into the louisville metropolis and comparing that to the life story my mind was just blown because nothing that they told us was true one really interesting thing about louisville that, or, and jeffersonville that you don't really think about nowadays is you know back then you there wasn't a bridge really where you could drive across and so if you wanted to bring a shipment from one side to the other you could do it on the train or you had to send it across by boat, right? And so if you think about that in logistics, um, Al Capone up in Chicago, with all the speakeasy networks, needed uh, liquor, right, in order to, to keep all of the mobs underground um, speakeasies operating. Well, a lot of that liquor came from Kentucky because Louisville in this area is where all the old bourbon distillers were at back in those days. And so the the... You couldn't, of course, load it on trains and send it over, right? You had to smuggle it. So it had to come across the river generally by, by boat. And right here you are in Jeffersonville. This is the spot where you would be slipping across these shipments um, in order to send them up to Chicago, to Al Capone, uh, to, to keep all the speakeasies operating, you know, all of that network. And so uh, Jeffersonville was an important link in um, mob operations back then for getting the liquor, it's like a gateway for it coming out of Kentucky from the distilleries to move it up into, um, you know, the mob-controlled speakeasy. So very, very uh, important thing that just doesn't exist anymore. And, and Louisville, like you, or Jeffersonville, like you mentioned, was a, an easy law town, right? You could, the laws were loose here, the law enforcement was loose here, and people looked the other way on a lot of that stuff. Um, and... It, 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 it was just a different time in a different way. Now, here we're coming up on the bridge, which William Branham claimed he saw um, rise up out of the river. And what's really interesting is is he, I always thought, John, he was like right in here somewhere playing marbles when oh, he yeah. saw the bridge come up out of the river. There's no way, because this is not where Mr. Wathen lived in here. Like, there's no way he was here and been able to see that that bridge rise up out of the water. I don't know if we're going to drive out past Mr. Wathen's house before we're done with, but it don't add up. Like he said, I was playing marbles in my yard. I look out. So I always thought he was right here. But then when we went and looked at the story of where he actually was when that happened, he's miles and miles away from here in this spot. Right. I mentioned I had a friend that I just recently gave a tour. And when we came through here, he was a little surprised when he saw this row of bridges right <laughs> there's not just one <clears throat> and I was explaining to him the dates in which they were all built well I showed him the oldest one the one where there actually was a tragedy wherein men fell from the bridge there was an accident and he said oh yeah that's the bridge that they show us whenever we're in uh, Africa they're showing us this exact bridge 
but that's that bridge was built before William Branham was even born, and it's not the the bridge that is farthest from where he lived. The one that he could there's no way he could have seen it. It is the one where he claimed to have had the prophecy, and he gave very clearly. He said, "What was it? 22, 23 years from the day." He said, I saw 16 men fall from the bridge, right? Well, <clears throat> I was explaining to him, you can even tell when you're looking at the bridge. The old style bridges were built in sections and they had these, these upward loops, these, um, it, it's very clear, they're built in sections. They're pillars and then in between the pillars, there are these loops that the bridge is constructed in. Well, the one, that the accident actually happened in one of those sections fell apart and then men did die but if you look at the newer the way the newer bridges are constructed they're not in sections like this so it's not even I mean it is possible but it's very unlikely that a section could collapse because it's one big rail that goes across and that that method of building the bridge was so um, it was so safe, according to the bridge historian locally, that they continued to use that same strategy after this bridge because very few people got injured, right? In fact, um, if you looked at the Searching for, Searching for Vindication website and they've got the Coast Guard logs, there's not a single aspect of William Branham's prophecy that is true. The problem for me is I drive past this, I see these bridges every day, and all of this goes through my head every day. Every person who lives in this town has to have, they see the same bridges I see. They have the same questions I have. The ministers who had access to go into these facilities that I've went into, they've had, a, what is it now, 50, 60 years to do this, to verify these prophecies, why have they not done it? <laughs> None of it makes any sense to me. Why do they even believe the religion that they claim is the truth? If so, why did they not even look to see is it true? Right, John. And there is a little museum right at the foot of the bridge. And it's a museum to the construction of the bridge. And you can go in there and you can ask the historian, did 16 people ever fall off this bridge and die? Did any people fall off this bridge and die? You can go in there, you can ask the trained historians of the bridge that question, you know, any day you want to go by, and you'll find out that William Branham made that story up, right? You can do it that simply. You want to go to the even deeper detail and dig through all the records and the logs like multiple people have, you'll see the same thing. It, it, William Branham made up the story that the people fell off. Maybe he did have a mental delusion vision of people falling off, but it, it just never happened, right? And he, the way he would tell that story with such passion that it was true um, for, for his entire life, the way he could deliver it with such a, such a certainty that he was telling something right, that is a little scary, right? Because if he could tell that thing which is demonstrably not true with such passion... I mean, how can you, how can you trust anything he says just because he's passionate about it, right? You you can't tell the difference between his truth and his lies. He's equally passionate when he's honest or dishonest. It's so problematic. And I know we noticed we also passed the uh, Falls of the Ohio up there, where 
you know, supposedly he was out on the river trying to find, rescue people during the flood. Um, you know, and again, we, we don't even know if that's true. It probably isn't. But, you know, the story that he told his, uh, told about his wife there dying in the flood. I mean, that's a huge, famous story. She, she got in the flood. They got in a refugee hospital and she contracted tuberculosis and died in the refugee hospital. A very famous story he told so many times. It's also not true, right? Um, just there, there's so many problems with every aspect of his life story that he told, uh, you know, about his early life, his early first marriage and so forth here in Jeffersonville. And it's just, it is so unbelievable. Um, it's so unbelievable to me that he did that to this day. And all of the fallout that has happened from all of these fake stories and then all the crazy nuts on the other side of the world, John, who <laughs> who have never even been here and think they know yeah. more about it than you and me, uh, <laughs> telling us we're crazy. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, Charles, because the people here... They know, like, they know the buildings we're going in. They know the documents we're getting. They see the bridges that we see. They know these things. So you don't find the people in Jeffersonville attacking our research so much as you do in other countries because they just simply don't know. The people here, and even to the, you know, in the United States in general, there are many people, Charles, in the United States who make this journey to Mecca, but all they do is they go into the cult-approved facilities and they don't look at any of this history to see is it actually real. So the people here in Jeffersonville, <laughs> they're less likely to challenge us than the people in other countries. It's, it's a bit odd, but you know, like I said earlier, the, when we put our research together, it just painted this, this much bigger history than what I even knew and the fact that the fact that it was so politicized in the strategy behind it and learning that some of the men that you had researched and some of the men that I had researched when we learned that they're actually linked together I had some of the puzzle pieces you had some of the puzzle pieces but when they started to paint the picture the picture was much bigger than Jeffersonville and much bigger than, you know, it's, it's bigger than the message, what, what I call the message. And I think we've explored this a bit. What I called the message isn't what they called the message in the 50s and 60s. So it's, it's just a bit odd to me that through the course of this, we're kind of unraveling the history that has been altered for all of these decades. And I just, I really want to know who altered it and why. Why Why did it change? What was the reason why they felt the need to change the history rather than preserve the history? I mean, any other religion, you take, I hate to say it, but even take the Catholic Church. Catholic Church, don't get me wrong, has done some bad things in their past. But you can usually go and you can find it because they preserve their history. And... There's an intent to learn from the mistakes, right? Well, in the message, rather than learn from the, the mistakes, let's just erase all of this history and pretend that it never, ever happened. <laughs> You're right, John. And the, the message relies so heavily upon 
these legends, these supernatural modern events, you know, right? And it, the message is, is so dependent on those in order to justify its existence because without the legends, without the mythology behind William Branham, I mean, there, there, there's just no justification for the message, right? Um, because the Bible, you know, there's just not enough in the Bible to justify the message. You've got to have all of this supernatural uh, mythology that's been invented around it. And it's really sad, honestly, um, how it was done. And, you know, a lot of it, I think that there was... William Branham himself was the man who was guilty of this. And then you had a bunch of people there who just could not believe that the man was possibly telling them something that wasn't true. And then it just sort of like it becomes conventional wisdom, conventional knowledge, and everybody says it happened, therefore it happened, but the truth is, there, there's actually no witnesses. Nobody was actually there. And, and at the end of the day, when you dig into it, you find out it was made up. And it is just so shocking how William Branham was able to get away with that. Uh, just like, get away with saying 16 men fell off that bridge and drowned. That never happened. Like, it's it's just incredible how he got away with these things, and nobody um, thought for a minute to to fact-check him, or the ones that knew it was wrong, they just went along with it. They just went along with it. And it it's something else. It's like the baptism story, John. You know, we're coming up here in the area where they did the baptism uh, in 1933. Um the people who were at the baptism all knew he made that story up, even though even the few that stayed into the message into the 50s. They knew it, but nobody would ever confront it or acknowledge it or say it out loud to his face that he imagined it. So, like you look in um, 20th Century Prophet um, or books like that where, like, Lee Vale wrote or, or the Prophet for Our Generation, which my sect put out, or different ones, that we would all admit... Nobody heard the voice except William Branham at the river. But all of these legends and myths built up. Like, I bet you the average person in the message does not realize that William Branham is the only one who heard a voice at the river that day. Right? Nobody nobody else did. But I bet you the average person in the message thinks there was a hundred or a thousand people sitting there that heard the voice that day. But there wasn't. There wasn't a single person that cooperates to the baptism story that William Branham told. I think that was one of the biggest things for me was just learning that the perspective I had was so far off and mentally we were manipulated to be this way because if you think about a town that's, you know, Jeffersonville is pretty small. It's not a big town by no means. <clears throat> and it was even smaller back then. And if you had a actual event where God parted the heavens and a voice spoke from, from the heavens and said, here's my beloved prophet, hear ye him. Well, everybody in this town is going to remember this and they're going to tell their children and their grandchildren. And <laughs> the way it works in America, there will be a statue of William Branham in this town. And there's no statue. Most people in this town have for completely forgotten his name. I, I was shocked whenever I began my research and I started know just talking to some of the locals and trying to understand what their views were on what happened and they're like who's that <laughs> I, I wouldn't I even talked to the um, 
local historical society. They knew who William Branham was, obviously, because they're the historical society, but they had no idea many of the boisterous claims that, <laughs> that William Branham made. And there's no way to, you know, they're false claims, so there's no way to corroborate his stories. And so I think for me, just learning that the people in the town are unaware, that in itself is revealing. Because these are not small claims. These are claims that if God actually parted the heavens <laughs> and said, here's my beloved prophet, hear ye him, this is going to make international news. And if by some weird chance it doesn't make international news, I can assure you that every single person in Jeffersonville to this day is going to know the name William Branham. I think, John, the truth is that there's really not a lot of people who are from Jeffersonville itself who were part of the message from the early days. Um, there was a high turnover at the Tabernacle, um, and as you come through the healing revival years and you move to the other side of it, you have just a lot of out-of-towners that come in here um, from Canada, from other parts of the United States. And as you come to the late 50s, um, I, I think there, you know, you have an almost, I would say, 95% turnover in the membership of the Branham Tabernacle from, from its original days. I don't think people maybe realize that. And so there's a huge just loss of knowledge um, of the past and what happened. And then William Branham can just say whatever in the world he wants and, <laughs> and nobody knows the difference, right? And, and even the people who are in the message from this area, they're not really from Jeffersonville. They're from northern Clark County. They're from Floyd County. They're from Harrison County. They're from Crawford County. They're from Jefferson County. There's not a lot. There's really not much that came from the Jeffersonville area. So there's not, I think, with a lot of people, an immediate awareness that even William Branham would be telling them things that are not true. Um, so I, I think that might explain how some of these stories that William Branham told just gradually evolved into accepted facts by everybody because he said them so much everybody said okay nobody objected and it just enters into oral history as though these things actually happened when truth be told they didn't you actually look into it there there was no witnesses there was you know, none of it happened he just made wholesale made stuff up and was telling stuff that was demonstrably false and untrue. Yeah, for me, I think that's one of the biggest eye-opening things. Learning that people in Jeffersonville weren't part of the body of church members, for the most part. Like you said, the mo majority of people came from out of town, out of country. Learning that, I mean, if you really take a step, and think, step back and think about it, if you are in this area and God parted the heavens and said here's my beloved prophet hear ye him well you're going to hear ye him you're going to, you're going to listen to this prophet right but if you were in the city of Jeffersonville and somebody said hey come to our church we you know they're a little bit deceptive in the way they invite you they never really tell you hey we're a cult but they'll say hey we we're this group of quote-unquote Pentecostals and uh, you know there's different ways that they word it well if a person from Jeffersonville comes to this area goes to the church 
and and William Branham were to make one of these just blatantly false claims they're gonna think okay that's a little weird I don't know why he said that but <laughs> that was not true and they're just gonna leave the majority of people are not going to try to say no that's that's false that guy's a liar they're just gonna walk away right well I think that's largely what happened I think people in Jeffersonville if by chance they were invited which you know this was a kind of an exclusive sect of elite Christians they call themselves it's highly unlikely the majority of people were invited from Jeffersonville if they were I sincerely doubt they would have stayed they would have just heard this and said yeah that guy's not telling the truth man <laughs> yeah I, I think that explains a lot and even on tape William Branham uh, as you come into the late 50s he would he would kind of take a survey of who who's here from the from the 30s and I think he was doing that because he was getting ready to tell a story and he wanted to make sure no one's there going to call him on it. <laughs> but but he would take the survey, you know, how many's here from from those days and never more than two or three people were left, right? There was a there was just a massive turnover in the congregation. And you think about how weird that is. It's really, you know, it's only 15 years, 15 years of time and li almost literally every single person left your church and you got a whole new congregation. That's weird. I got to say that's weird. But that, that's what happened in the tabernacle. And I think that actually speaks volumes to how the original crowd reacted to <laughs> some of the boisterous claims that William Branham started making uh, as the healing revivals uh, went underway, right? The people back in Jeffersonville knew he was making stuff up. I mean, come on, of course they did. So, and if he wasn't and all of that glorious stuff was true, then why in the world did they all leave the church, right? There's, there's things like this the message just does not have an explanation for. Um, the message is primarily made up of people who joined in the 50s after the healing revival started. And most of the people who I knew John personally, who knew William Branham in the 30s, did not, were not in the message in the 30s. Um, you know, I, for example, I knew a man who carpooled with William Branham to work when he worked for the public service company. They weren't, he wasn't in the message then. They were people outside of the message, and they, they just didn't, they joined up long after um, all, of, all of that stuff had happened, and it's just already passed into accepted history. And so, very, very interesting stuff how, how, that, how that all happened. And William Branham, I would say, played it all masterfully. He played it masterfully in order to to um, invent this backstory, which so much of it is just not even true. It's kind of funny, Charles. We're pulling up to the Baptist church that we went to right after leaving the message, and it's such painful memories leaving because I know that you've mentioned it. In fact, I, th I think we're going to talk about it some more in the future, but there's such bullying when you leave this cult. And when we left the cult, we went to this little Baptist church here for a couple years. There were some of the cult henchmen that would actually show up <laughs> at this Baptist church and watch us go to the building after we left. And they, they would do it continuously. I have uh, another family member who also escaped the cult, and it really bothered him because and his family because this... It's intimidating. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to intimidate you. And, you know, leaving the cult and watching that happen in this area, 
it's just it's really odd it's not like if you went to a normal non-cult church and you decided to leave they would kind of welcome you back with open arms if you wanted to come back and they would wish their blessings on you when you left but <laughs> it's not that way around here so driving around I'm getting some mixed emotions some, some of it I'm glad I'm left and other parts it's a very painful journey another we're about to come up on William Branham's house here and it's it's painful because I remember as a kid coming and seeing this house and seeing the people that you know the people <laughs> that live in it now I won't get into many details there but it has become this weird community of message believers that Charles we're gonna drive past here but I guarantee you within five minutes of us driving by everybody who's in the cult in this area they're all gonna know that we're driving by and they're gonna be like what are they doing <laughs> what are they doing <laughs> yeah John I mean you're, you're right the, the cult around here is very bullying and that that tells a lot about you know what they are I mean for example the mission that we've run same thing I mean someone comes out and would park in front every single service to you know basically take names of whoever would come to the mission again intimidation they would scatter nails in the parking lot multiples of times trying to you know cause damage to tires other things they would do to cause property damage I mean the there are people from the cult who are they're not mentally okay they're they're mentally deranged and when the leaders get in the platform and they they I mean you go look on their websites they will scream and rant and rave and like lunatics and say that you know people like me or you are the devil incarnate and you know that we're gonna put them all in concentration camps or something I mean and that's pretty well direct quotes for some of what they've said I mean they and then you have these crazy people who act out on that they do they take the things that they will um, insinuate and they'll actually go put that into action and and the leaders know that they know that they can insinuate things and they know that the crazy nuts in their church will go act on it and um, they've, they've weaponized that and this I have to say is a very dangerous cult I mean there are all kinds of things we could say uh, but here we come turning up Ewing Lane now <laughs> uh, this would be the the home of William Branham and you know, in the first Angelic Commission story, he says, I saw, I looked out the window to see a car turn the corner. Um, when he first told that Angelic Commission story in 47, um, it really sounds almost like he was in his home here on Ewing Lane. And as you can look, the, they own, the Brandon family owns, you know, half of this street here, as you can tell. They're all fenced off together, and um, they're very large, nice homes. Uh, they've been, uh, you know, extensively expanded and enlarged, and um, yeah, William Branham had a, a very nice home, and this is just one of of a fair number of homes which William Branham owned. It is a bit odd when you compare it to like Joe Osteen, <laughs> the the mansions that some of these people live. It's nowhere near that level. This is just, you know, it used to be a modest home, but. Remember, these people, they know how to dig basements. They know <laughs> what you see on the surface may not match what's underneath, too. There's, there's quite a bit more to the story than meets the eye, but it's, it's just so different now. Whenever I drive past this home, I remember as a kid crying my eyes out watching the 20th Century Prophet because, oh my gosh, that's God's prophet, you know, and here's this humble home. People have watched it 
after leaving the cult and after deprogramming, they they see the fake smile on his face and they hear the way that it's all is very rehearsed what he said. It's just not, you know, it's not what we grew up with. It's not what we remember. And the fact that <laughs> the fact that that is one of the key videos for the worldwide movement it just blows my mind because there's not really much substance to it it's literally an advertisement <laughs> here's a guy that we're advertising he has a healing ministry come watch him that's really all it is but we thought it was so much more and the house had a special i mean this this house is nothing uh, this house was special to us because this dead guy lived in it and how's that different charles from islam if they knew exactly where muhammad's hut or house or whatever he lived in if they knew that where that was message people would ridicule muslims for honoring the house of muhammad they really would but not in the message man you can do this and you can get away with it because that's god's prophet god spoke from the heavens this is my beloved prophet hear ye him that's spot on, John, and the, the message is a religion of relics, and the pilgrimages here to Jeffersonville are um, relic tours to the reliquaries of the message. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's no, no, no different than the Catholic Church, you know, with all of their pieces of the true cross. You, you come to Jeffersonville, why, well, you can see the, the piece of the true car. Um, you come to Jeffersonville, you can see the, the spot where this miracle happened, and the spot where that miracle happened, and then the other, and then here's the place where the prophet did this, and here's the place where the prophet ate his red hot candies, and you can just, you can see it all, and why? Why? I mean, I mean, what in the world? I mean, ha what about Jesus? What about Jesus? You know, and it's like they've entirely displaced what... Christianity should even be focused on. Like the, the whole focus of the cult has moved away from Jesus Christ and moved into William Branham. Like he has usurped so much of the role of God. He's usurped so much that belongs to the Father, you know. He, he's usurped being the voice of God. He's usurped the role of the Holy Spirit in controlling the lives of people rather than letting them be led by the Holy Spirit themselves. He's usurped the role of Jesus Christ where many people have taken parts of him to themselves for, for their own salvation. And it is, it is a royal mess um, what the message has done with this stuff. And it really is a cry and shame. I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, <laughs> we're coming up on the cemetery now where the body is buried. And Charles, I'm actually ho I'm looking to see. I don't think there are. But usually you drive past here and you find people praying to his dead body. And <laughs> I was going to say, if they are right now, I, I would stop the truck and I'd probably invite them in so they could be on the video with us. But <laughs> there's nobody there now. I, you know, I drive past here all the time and multiple occasions I find people praying to the dead guy that's laying under this pyramid and it's just so wrong man they ridicule the Islamic people for how they worship Muhammad and they're doing the same exact thing those that don't pray to the grave they're still worshiping the prophet in one way or another they're still worshiping the prophet but you know Charles kind of bringing this towards the close I I'm just glad that I'm out of that. I'm glad that I can drive through this grave 
and the only thing that I think when I look over there at this pyramid is that's pretty weird man that is a pyramid and there's a dead guy under the pyramid who claimed that God spoke from the heavens and said this is my beloved prophet hear ye him it's such a boisterous claim if I were to say if I were to go to one of the new churches that we attend and I were to say you know God spoke from the heavens and said what I say to you is important so you better listen to me <laughs> they would laugh at me man and I drive through this grave and I just look at this and I think this is the weirdest thing and yet I was in it I can't believe I was raised in it but I was in this I was in this weird thing and I'm driving past and I'm literally looking at a pyramid that <laughs> make it makes no sense it's not even closely related to Christianity I'm looking at a pyramid that's got William Branham and the church ages on it and the church age different Lado to see in Philadelphia and etc every person who comes to this grave site you know and their their family member is passed and they're sad well, they have to look at this pyramid and think what is this weird thing because again most of the people in Jeffersonville have no idea you know, John, if we got out and walked over to the grave, we could pull out of the cracks of it the prayers that people have wrote on paper and rolled up and fitted into the cracks. Like, they, people come from all over the world and roll their prayers up into little papers and fit it into the cracks of the grave like, like you would go to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Like, it is, um, it's very idolatrous, you know, and, you know, it's bad enough that people do that. What's worse is that the leaders of the message do not openly condemn it and put it to a stop, right? Right? I mean, they could do that. You know, the leaders could say, this is idolatry, stop, don't do this anymore. But but they don't, right? Like, there's no there's no attempt within the group to, to, to do anything. And, and even if most of them tried, they would be unsuccessful because the cult has been built in such a way that nobody can bring anything into correction, right? William Branham designed this in such a way that anything goes and there is no mechanisms for discipline or control or hold preachers accountable especially. So, you know, you're all right as we bring this to a close, John. I mean, it is just so good just to be out of this thing, right? Just to be free, to be able to follow Jesus and not have to be trapped by this false doomsday message, right, of, of William Branham, you know, the Bible says that um, being justified by the blood of Jesus, we shall be delivered from wrath. We don't need a, a doomsday false message to deliver us from the coming wrath. We just need Jesus. We just need to be justified by his blood. And the message just violates the very core tenets of the gospel. Um, and really the only thing you need to tear the, God, the message apart doctrinally is just the basics of the gospel. And they just generally do not believe in the sufficiency of Christ. And that is ultimately, ultimately the great, greatest sin of the message is, is how they have just departed from the true gospel, in my, my honest opinion. But it really is a shame that no one is willing to do anything to try and steer the people back to Jesus inside the group. They're just going deeper and deeper and deeper into the hole of this man who has, time itself has proved out, facts and evidence have proved out, he was just deceiving us. 
he was tricking us wholesale, hoaxing us about the stuff that happened in 1963. Jesus never came back. The Lord never descended from heaven with a shout. There was no midnight cry. Seven angels never came to him to commission him to open the seven seals. None of this happened. And the message is predicated on those hoaxes that William Branham perpetrated on us. So Charles, there's one thing I need to thank you for helping me do because it, it has actually been one of the greatest things that you don't you're not even aware that you have done it. It's given me a bit of peace that I honestly I did not have until we did this podcast. And I'm going to let out a little secret because not many people are aware. I always laugh whenever I see people who are they're talking about the books, preacher behind the white hood specifically. Why are you selling this? You're just doing this for money. <laughs> they have no idea the amount of time that it puts in, that I put into all of this. They have no idea. Like if I were to just divide my time out per hour, I'd probably be making a few cents per hour. <laughs> There's so much time that went into it. <clears throat> but I had tried years ago. I, I wanted to walk away from all of this. And I, it's, this is not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to put a beacon out. Hey, this is false. We're going to leave it. I was going to walk away, right? And I had created this little docu-series. You can go on to the YouTube site now and you can see it. It's called The Message. <clears throat> well, I'd made this docu-series and I'd made it all the way up to the... I think it was the Jim Jones episode... And the cult started attacking me heavily. I fought it off as as long as I could. I think I made it maybe a little, maybe a couple episodes past that, not very very far. And they brought everything down. And my walking away strategy went down with it, because that was my my beacon. That was the present. That was the presentation of all of the evidence that I had collected for almost a decade. So here's a little secret, Charles. I've told you this privately, but I've not told many people. I went to a wedding anniversary retreat with my wife, and it tore me up. When they brought this down, it tore me up. It really did. Because not only was it my walking away strategy, I had invested thousands of hours and thousands of dollars in making it what it is. I mean... It, there's a big expense and a big time expense that goes with all of this. I was devastated, but more than that, I, how do I walk away now because they brought it down? There was no closure. And so the thought hit me at like 2 a.m. while I'm <laughs> with my wife in a hotel and on our wedding anniversary. Well, I've made the docuseries and I still have all the files and maybe I can do something with that. And and I woke up, I'm, you know, my mind's thinking through all of that. What do I do? And I want to say it was like 3 a.m., Charles. <laughs> I wrote this program that opened up all of my video files. It extracted all of the transcripts from those files. It put them, they weren't uh, in any sort of order, but it put them chronologically by file and put them... Uh, chronologically by X and Y coordinates so I could see which one went to the farthest left, which one to the right. And um, I had it spit out, this Word document. So at 3 a.m. on our wedding anniversary, my wife woke up. She said, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) 
and um, it spit out a manuscript and that manuscript is the preacher behind the White Hoods book. Believe it or not, that book is a computer generated book from start to finish. So when all these people attack me, why are you not doing this for free? Well, I did. <laughs> the, the book was the video and still today, if you want to go watch the videos, you're watching the book. It's literally the same thing. And so doing this with you has brought a lot of closure because now I have, it's out there. I have all the research out there. I've got the website. If you want to know what is about, what this cult is about, if you want to know how deceptive this cult is, there is not a single person that can't find it. It's so easy to find right now. It's on the website. Now, granted, they'll probably attack the YouTube site again. They always do. But at this point, we've got a pretty solid strategy behind that. <clears throat> if you... If it does go down, you just go to our website, william-branham.org, and you're going to find everything still there with the strategy that's in place. So this series that we've done on William Branham, this is the final episode. This is our grand finale. This is our, if you would, you know, if you would call it from a television show, you'd call it a series finale. It is the end of my research and publication on William Branham. And it is my walking away strategy. I do intend to do some things going forward. It'll be a lot slower than it has been in the past. I've nearly killed myself, you know, to this point. Have to slow down. I have put many family things on hold. Um, there's, a, there's a heck of a lot of honey-do list things that I need to do around my house that literally it's all been on hold because I've been doing this thing. And... It's time to move on. It's time to now enjoy the post-cult life a bit. So this is this is my walking away strategy. But I do intend to continue slowly. Um, I'm still going to continue the Weird Doctrines podcast because I, <laughs> I really enjoy doing that. But I'll be honest, the in going forward, if I never say the name William Branham again, I'll be a very happy man. I know I have to because some of the research ties back to him, but my focus going forward is going to change. What that looks like, I'm not certain. He was just, William Branham was just one cog in a much, much larger wheel, and I still have every single other cog that I could go explore and investigate. So maybe I do that, maybe I, I do a podcast where we talk about the, you know, the political underworld that was tied to this thing or the there's so many different directions I could take but anyway I wanted to thank you because this has brought closure to something that has been a huge part of my life for over a decade and until you did this with me I really had no idea how I was going to walk away from all of this well thank you John I appreciate that I'm glad I was able to to be some sort of a help in that way um you know in, in a lot of ways i acknowledge you know we're certainly and myself standing on the shoulders of a lot of people that have went before us you know um peter doiser who passed away just this past few months was was one of the real founding guys putting together x message literature 
um, who started figuring this stuff out really not long after William Branham died. Um, and it's gradually come together. And it's, you know, because of people like you, because of people believe the sign, uh, because of, you know, the Barones searching for vindication, the people who believe the claims that this material started to get on the internet in such a way that uh, people like me found it. Um, and part of it, John, you know, when I was in the message, I, I come, <laughs> I let you have it a whole lot. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, some of, you know, some of what I'm doing with you is eating a whole lot of crow. <laughs> but I'm not uh, too big a man to eat some crow. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's important for people to know the facts, um, I don't know, honestly, John, that there's anybody that's left the message that is as well-positioned as you and I to be able to share these things. Um, you and I are from the first and second oldest message churches. We have known the people who knew William Branham all the way back to the beginning, and I don't really think there's many other people who've left the message with those credentials to be able to do what we've done. Um, and I, I, I feel good about the way we've done it, too. We have... Um, we have presented the facts. We've given a very clear walkthrough of the facts and the evidence for the things we've talked about. Sure, here, here and there, we've certainly in, injected some of, some of our opinions, um, but for the most part, we've just stuck with the with the matter of facts. And people are free to um, look at the facts. You know, you might have a different opinion. You might have a different conclusion than we do, and that's fine, right? But you know, you you can look at the facts. They're all laid out here for you. And I think not only does this maybe help bring closure for people like you and me, but I think anybody leaving the message, there, there's enough here for them to be able to put together the pieces and realize how all this came about, what some of the objectives of it were, and just really what happened to what happened to them in this cult. And I, I hope that's a help. Um, hope that's a help over time to lots and lots of people. I'm really glad that we'll have the opportunity to keep these published um, for years to come. And yeah, I'm sure the cult will attack it, John, but uh, you and I are both uh, <laughs> career-long technology experts. <laughs> they won't be able to keep it down for long. <laughs> yeah, so like I said, Charles, thank you for doing this. <laughs> this has brought closure, and if I never have to mention the name Branham again, which <laughs> I'll probably have to, but I'll be a happy man the the, mo the least amount of times that I have to mention that man's name. This is bringing some closure to all of this, and it's time to move on. Um, usually at the end of the episodes, I give a little thing where if you need help, reach out to us. And I want to change that up a bit, and I want to give it now versus the very end, because I want to say if you've enjoyed the series that we've done, the overwhelming amount of work that went into it that Charles and I have put into this uh, podcast, send us a thank you note and let us know that you appreciate it. You can contact us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. <clears throat> and we'd love to hear from you. We want to know that you did enjoy this in the history. Um, the overwhelming amount of work, people have no idea. There are some episodes, I think the most that I remember, Charles, I think one episode in particular I think it was 46 hours of editing. Let me ask the Gordon Lindsay episode. <laughs> well, actually, I actually hadn't considered that. That was more than 46. The one I was thinking of was different. But <clears throat> the amount of time that goes into finding all the resources and putting them in and the transitions and the editing, we I'm very particular about the audio. And there's just a lot of work that goes into it. But 
We um, wanted to make sure that it was a presentation that everybody for decades to come can find, learn about the history, understand what this is, why these people act like this. And I think we've done it justice. I, I hope so. And um, <clears throat> Charles and I are planning on doing a little bit of a Q&A. I'm not certain exactly yet how we're going to do that. We may do another, an additional podcast with that. We may just do some little single question clips. We're talking through how best to do that. But if you have questions, you can send them in. We can't get to all of them. <laughs> We've already looked through some of them earlier today, and there's just too many to go through. But if you have one that is burning and we feel it's important, we're going to include it. Um, and I'm going to be taking a few you know, a few weeks break. I will probably, like I said, continue doing the weird doctrines podcast because I really enjoy doing that. It's just fascinating some of the things that ministers say. And we'll be doing something in the future. I'm not sure exactly what it's going to look like. Um, but it's something about the history, something, you know, William Branham was just one cog in this much larger wheel. I say, I've mentioned that a few times. There are so many other cogs that we could examine and explore. So what it looks like going forward, I'm not certain, but I will say that as far as William Branham is concerned, that chapter of my life is now coming to a close. And Charles, I'm very happy that's coming to a close. <laughs> yeah, John, I, I know you've put in so much work doing all the editing. I really appreciate that. And also thank you for the opportunity. Um, you know, it takes a lot to um, <laughs> to open your arms to people who hated you a few weeks prior. <laughs> oh, boy. But there, there's a great thriving community here outside of the message. If, if you decide to leave, um, you're going to find friends. And it's not so scary out here uh, on the outside. And, you know, I, I, I say um, <laughs> in my series, John, that I do on my website, I, I tell people, you know, if you have... You have to live in Babylon. Just be a Daniel, be an Esther. You know, be an Ezekiel. You know, you you don't necessarily have to exit uh, the community that you're part of. But if you got to live in Babylon, don't be a Babylonian. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's really all it is. You know, a lot of people think we're trying to make everybody leave or this or that or the other. Not love Jesus, serve Jesus. You know, and, and you're going to be okay wherever you're at. And just because you're in Babylon don't mean you're a Babylonian. So, anyways, that's I think that's all for me, John. Well, the only thing that I can add to this that, for me, it's significant, and I'll try very hard not to tear up. I've mentioned a few times, but I have my cousin to thank largely for what you see here. My cousin, Marcus, who, um, you know, as I was going through the hardest part of leaving the cult... He called me every single day to make sure that I did not commit suicide. And he, um, I asked him one time, why don't you believe William Branham? Because he, he didn't. He left the message before I did. And he said, John, I believe the cowboy religion. I've mentioned this a few times. He said, love God, love your neighbors that aren't uh, trying to kill you and be kind to animals. And that was his, that was his religion and his philosophy. And that's, you know... The further I get away from the cult, no matter what church you go to, I think that's a pretty good philosophy. Because Jesus said the greatest two commandments is love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, that's that's all he was doing. I'm I'm deeply saddened with, his, with the loss of my cousin. 
Um, he died, you know, during it was during COVID. It was I think it was a year and a half ago. But anyway, everything that you see here, my website, the work that I do, every single thing literally exists because my cousin Marcus kept me going, helped literally saved my life. And not nothing that you not a single thing that you see on my website would exist without him helping me. So I have that I have him to thank. So wanted to make sure that I pay respect to my cousin who helped me with this. But anyway, like I said, if you've enjoyed what we've done, if you've enjoyed the series, please let us know. Contact us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. Stay tuned on the podcast and on the website. You'll you'll hear some things. It's going to slow way down, but you're going to hear some continued work. And then um, here in a few weeks, I'm not certain when, after, after I plan it out, there will be something new. And it will be beyond what William Branham created, or it will be something that contributed to the creation of William Branham. But it's going to be, like I said, it's something completely different. So stay tuned for that. I will be back. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, have one question I'll ask it to you, John. Um, sir, is this the sign of the end? <laughs> yes, my friend, this is the sign of the end. This is, <laughs> this is the close of the series. So, I, um, like I say, I will be back. Stay tuned. There will be more. <laughs> Thank you.